Go ahead and, and grab seats. Good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is, is Tim and I have the pleasure of serving as, as one of the pastors here on staff. And, and this morning we're going to be in the passage that Hannah just read for us, Matthew 11. So if you have a Bible, we invite you to turn. Open your Bible to Matthew 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some on the back table. Um, we're a church that, that preaches uh, out of Scripture, and so I always encourage you, if you have a Bible, bring it. And if you don't, um, grab one of those, take it home. It's, it's our gift um, to you. And so before we jump into to Matthew 11, this text this morning, why not pray for us and ask, ask for God's help. Father, in this text, Jesus promised that if we go to him, he will give us rest. And I just confess, this, this past week just has not been restful. So I need, I need to understand what Jesus is saying here. How, how I can enter this life. God, I, I sense many of us feel that. We want to enter into this life of rest. Would you show us how? Would you open this text before us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, I spent time in the temple of a different God. I don't know if this makes it better or worse, but there was a restaurant inside that, that temple that Missy and I really wanted to try, and it was our eighth wedding anniversary, so we went. The temple, its architecture, it was stunning. It made me feel like I was in a different world, experiencing a different world. It made me jealous that we worship in, in this place, because there my heart was moved. And let's be honest, no heart has ever been moved by looking at a middle school. Every few yards that we walked, there was an, an idol adorned with clothing, enticing me, inviting me, encouraging me that this should be your life. Inside the windows where the idols were, were priests and priestesses who, if I went and gave an offering, made a sacrifice to them, the life that was promised me in those windows would be mine. This temple I went to is the mall. More specifically, the, the plaza. And before you think I'm crazy for calling the mall a temple, just think about the mall for a second, what it's like. Now, why does the mall have all of these images of people smiling because they bought a sweatshirt for $80 from the North Face? Right, why are there so many women looking seductively? Why do all of those women have completely impossible human proportions? Why are there no ads of sad people at the mall. When you actually look at people at the mall, they're all sad. But the reason that that's true of the mall, because the moment you walk in from the mall, that temple, those who created that space, they know something about us. That the way to your money, which is what they want, is your heart. And the way to your heart is worship. Now, although worship sounds like a religious where all worship is, is love. It's a longing. It's a desire for. It's to see some end and to want that end. That the mall gods understand what it is to be a human being. That you are what you love. That to be human is to desire. It's to want. It's to long for something. And that's what you desire. That's what you want. That's what you worship. And here's the warning that the mall experience should be to you and I. Is that we know what the mall sells us is ridiculous. Like, I know if I go and buy a shirt at Macy's, I'm not going to look like the guy who's wearing that shirt smiling. I know that. Right? We look at the mannequins and we know that those are not, no normal human being looks like that. But we still look at those things and we say, I want to look like that. 
If I had that, I, I'd be whole. I, I'd be complete. I'm broken, therefore I'm fine. And we walk into the mall and our hearts are moved. That you are what you love. So what do you love? What does your heart long for? What is the future that you see and vision for yourself that your heart desires? That Jesus sees this reality in us, that, that our love, it's, it's taking us somewhere. And here in Matthew 11, he's, he's getting in between us and what we love. And he's offering us a different path forward. And in Matthew 11, in this invitation that Jesus gives to us, he's saying, first and foremost, we love the wrong things. Secondly, he offers us what we need to love the right things. And thirdly, he shows us how to do it. So to start, we love the wrong things. Things and I really for, for many of us that may not be something that you buy into. That if, if our culture has any rule, it's that what you love is ultimately good for you. If you try to, if you don't try to get what you desire, if you don't go after what you love most, it's actually harmful to you. It's disastrous to you. That if you want something, if you love something, you should go and get it. But there, there are two clues in this passage that's actually not a wise path forward. That what you love may actually actually be harmful to you. The first clue, it's actually in the, the passage before what Hannah read for us earlier. It's the, the story that kind of sets up the invitation passage that Hannah read for us. It's, it's Matthew 11, verse 20, that just before Jesus invites us into life with him, here's what happens. Verse 20 of Matthew 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This, this is the part of Jesus' life that, life that has always confused me, that... If, you, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, you remember in Matthew 8 and 9, we, we read all the stories of what Jesus had done in the lives of people. He had healed the sick. He had, had cleansed lepers. He had made the deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see. And people had seen all of those things. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's looking at these people who had watched him do all of these things. And they just walked right past Jesus and didn't make, they had nothing to do with him after they, they saw him do these Amazing things. And for me, the question from that has always been, how can someone have the power of God, the majesty of God, the beauty of God right in front of them, and it make no difference to their life? They just walk right past. How is that possible? Well, I have a friend who, who is a Christian and who has begun um, dating seriously and is thinking about marrying someone who is, is not a Christian. And, and I, I know this is a weird demand in our culture today. It's a sort of surprising demand, but in the Bible, um, it's pretty explicit that Christians are only to marry other Christians, not because Christians are better people. It's just the, the, the way the Bible talks about marriage. Jesus makes that um, sort of, that's an implication of the way Jesus looks at marriage. It's also something Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians. It's, it's, a, it's a rule in the Bible that if you're a Christian, you, you should only date, marry, another Christian. And listen, my friend knows that. Knows that command. Just like I know when I go to the mall, that shirt is not going to change my life. It's not going to make me look like that guy. I know that. I have the facts. But you and I, we're not what we think. We're what we love. What we desire. And in that moment, my mind can know all the facts. But the mall doesn't get after me by handing me a sheet of paper with a text printed on it. Tim. If you spend $80 on a sweatshirt at North Face, your life will be better. Because if I read that, it would be ridiculous. But I see the pictures, right? The guy climbing the mountain. I'm like, I, I want to do that. It, it, it comes right after 
my heart. And that is exactly the way this world works. It tells you there's a better story, there's a better thing to desire in your life. Go after that. And that's why religious people often do things that are totally contrary to what we say we believe. It's because what we, what we want in the end, what we love in the end, that is what we'll go after. Not what we think. Not what we know. It's what we love most. And ultimately, the future that you see for yourself, the kingdom of which you're envisioning, you're going to get it. And it's either Jesus and his kingdom that you long for, or it's, it's your own. And if it's your own, then Jesus can be right in front of you. He can be healing the sick. He can be making a dead person come back to life. And it, it will not impress you. It's not what you, you want your own kingdom, and Jesus is just going to get in the way of that. But you are what you love. So what, what do you love? Is Jesus and his kingdom the future that you long for? Or is it your own? So that, that first clue isn't, isn't a sign of a warning, maybe, that those who were right around Jesus missed him, didn't see him. That's a, a sign that maybe you and I love the wrong things. The second clue in this passage is what Jesus says in his invitation. I, mean, this is, I think this is his selling point, right? He says, come and do life with me, because if you do, you will have, you'll have rest. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come and follow me, you'll have an unburdened life, you'll have rest. Now, when was the last time you asked someone, Hey, how are you doing? How's life? How's it going? And their answer to you was, I'm a rest. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a lot of bad things happening, but I'm unburdened. We never say that. We say we're busy, you know, I've got too much going on. I'm, I'm just way down. I'm, I'm, no one has ever told me when I've asked them, how are you, that, that I'm resting. Why? Well, 1,700 years ago, there was a Christian named Augustine who lived. And one thing he said was that, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in, in Christ. And I used to understand that, like, like there's this God-shaped hole in me, and until you fill you know, God in that, that hole, it's not going to work out for you. That, but that's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is that, that your hearts, they're carrying you somewhere. And if they're carrying you to something that is not Christ, you're only going to feel restless. You're not going to have rest. The deep sense of rest that Christ offers you until your heart is carrying you to him. And he's saying it. What we're trying to say this morning is that your heart is, what it loves, it's not just a static thing. It's taking you somewhere. You have a future in mind, and you are being led there by what you love. And if you're not led by Christ, you're, you're going to have this restlessness to you. Like you're, you're driving somewhere, and you're not sure the location is right, or you're pretty sure the Google Maps has found you the wrong location. There's a restlessness to your soul. Now, I used to think my, my, I was restless because my calendar was too full. But here's the reality. My ancestors, like two, three hundred years ago, they had to spend most of their day like finding dinner out in the woods or chop down woods that would have, have heat in their home. Whereas I have a furnace in Chick-fil-A. Right? Most of my calendar I have self-opted into. And so if I'm restless, it's not because I'm doing it too much. It's because my heart loves the wrong things. There's this, this Russian film called Stalker. It was released in, in, the 19, in 1979, and it, it asked this question, what do you love? But it's a more powerful story one. It's a dystopian story. I love those stories. Um, so the world is falling apart. Every, there's a pervading sadness throughout all of humanity. Um, so think like The Walking Dead, only sadly in Stalker there are no zombies. It's a zombie-free dystopian story. And, and the plot follows three men on a journey. The professor, writer, and stalker. 
And the plot is sort of murky in the beginning, but as the plot becomes clear, Stalker is leading Professor and Ryder to the zone. More specifically, the room in the zone. And what Stalker is telling Professor and Ryder is that when you get to the room, when you step into the room, your heart will get what it most wants. And your whole world will become everything that you want it to be. So they get to the room and they stand outside of it. Stalker speaks up. This is the most important moment of your life. You're about to achieve your heart's deepest desire. You're going to have all that you want. Would you step in the room? I would. Then my fear is, is what I really want, my deepest desire, is that, that our church, we would, we would have a perfectly heated and cold sanctuary to seven degrees. We'd have our own building. We'd have too many children ministry volunteers to know what to do with. We wouldn't have to set up and tear down every, um, every day. That, that every sermon would be a huge hit. You'd just line up to shake my hand and pat me on the back. And it'd all be great and perfect and wonderful. And Jesus wouldn't be in me. That what I really want is success and popularity and to have my name beneath it. Or I'm afraid that I'll step into the room and my family will be everything that I want it to be. That what, what I want most, though, is, is for my kids to be popular, for them to have a good life, for them to get into the right college, to be good at sports, and to cause me the least amount of trouble possible. And that I'll get all of that. And Jesus won't be in it that he had different plans for my life, but I didn't want his kingdom, I wanted mine. That really the question behind that movie is, is what if you don't really know what you want, what you want, what you love? You, we think we know, but do you really know what you most want? And I would say to you and me that our restlessness is surely a sign that we, we do not love the right things. Our restlessness is a clue that you and our hearts are being pulled in the wrong direction, and that is our rest. That is why we are so restless. And the bad news is, you and I, we are going to step into the room, ultimately. And the Bible talks a lot about, about judgment, and I, I think C.S. Lewis best sums up the way the Bible talks about what happens after you and I die. He said this in, in what I think maybe his best book, The Great Divorce. Here's what he says about, about you and I and the fact that we will step into that room at some point. C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God will say in the end, your will be done. All that, in are, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no help. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, those who knock, it is open. I remember the first time I, I read that, I'm like, who would choose, who would choose Hell, and then I remember Jesus, Jesus' life. How many people were right next to him? I think about the own, my own restlessness in my soul, and I think, well, here's what it is at 30, at 32 years old. What's it like a thousand years from now? How bad is my restlessness if I keep loving the wrong things? And that's the point of what God said, or what judgment is about in the Bible, is that you and I, in the end, we will get everything we want, and it will either be endless joy and bliss, or it will be hell. But either way, we're going to get what we want. And so it raises the question, if we love our own thing, what do we do? What's the answer? And the answer is what Jesus says in verse 20, what he wanted these cities to do, to repent. 
Right? Repentance is, is, a, is a metaphor saying you're going the wrong way, you have to stop. Right? It's to recognize your love. It's carrying you in the wrong direction. It's time to stop. So that, that's where we start. We start with repentance. We love the wrong thing, so we, we need to repent. Well, at least the point, too, what Jesus offers us, what you and I need to love the right things, what actually repentance looks like. And what Jesus says you and I need is a yoke. The hero's invitation, verses 28 and 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There is the question why a yoke, right? Because for all of us, probably most of us in here, we don't know what a yoke a yoke is. And so think McDonald's uh, flipped the flip the sign over. It's it's what, what a farmer would use to train two oxen. So one oxen would have the yoke around his neck and lock him in place, and then you take a young, inexperienced dumb, right, not very wise ox, and you put his uh, neck into that yoke. And so they're both constrained, the mature, wise, strong ox, and the, the weak, young, immature ox. And over time, as they worked the field together, that younger ox would become exactly like the older ox. That is what Jesus says you need to yoke. Essentially what Jesus says to me is, is Tim, you're kind of like a really dumb man. Right? You go to the mall and you want to buy stuff that is not going to make you happy. You're a really dumb animal. So here's what we need. We need to get something around your neck and stop you from wandering off and get you on to the straight path. Which raises the question, okay, so how does a yoke help you and I begin to love the right things? And there's a couple, a couple things, a couple implications to this image of the yoke. The first is that Jesus, with his image, he's going after your heart. And the yoke... It's actually, it's a pretty troubling image. And to a number of folks, that, that image evokes slavery. It's an image of force constraint, right? It's something around your neck that you can't get out of. And I think that's a part of the point of why Jesus uses it, to, to give you a troubling image of what you need. Right? If, if you love the wrong thing, Jesus has to chase you down. He has to wrap something around your neck and, and, and keep it there so your heart doesn't wander off. That is the image he gives to you. It's meant to jar you. It's meant to warn you. It's meant to make you feel constrained. But more than that, I think the yoke shows us that, that you and I, our hearts are changed in the mundane. When, when an ox was learning in a yoke, it was, it was daily, um, mundane, repetitive work. It was just plowing a field. And I often think that my life will change, that my heart will change if I have some amazing experience, or I, I get some new piece of information, but Jesus is saying, no, you're changing the yoke. Your loves are changed through the mundane, through the repetitive, through the daily life. In that movie, Stalker, when the professor and writer on the outside of the room, they, they asked the question I asked earlier, which is, how do I know what I really want? How do I know that if I don't step in the room, everything's going to fall apart on me, that I don't really know what I want? And another character gives a brilliant answer to that question. When another character says... If you want to know what, you're, what you love most, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. The daily repetitive work, that is a clue to what you really love, what you really want in life. And this isn't just something that a movie said or that Jesus is saying. Actually, the, the book Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg makes the same point. Here's what he writes. 
When he talks about our habits and how they inform our direction where we're headed, what we love, he writes, all our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits. Practical, emotional, and intellectual. Systematically organized for weal or woe, and bearing us irresistibly toward our destiny. Whatever the latter may be. That our habits are bearing us toward our destiny. That your daily life shows you what you really truly love. For example, think of, think of diet. It, it's sort of a well-known established fact that, that those who lose a lot of weight tend to struggle to gain it, gain it back. Um, and so my, my own life has been, been a story that's true for me. I've lost a lot of weight. I've struggled to gain it back. And there's been this kind of, this yo-yo, this give and, and take. And I, I think I know why now. I don't know if this is right, but I think this is right from my own experience. At the end of the day, if what I most desire in life, what I most love, what I most want is to eat pizza with Doritos crumble on it and top it off with donuts smothered with ice cream, like, that is the life I'm going to have. And really, the only reason that, that I diet or I lose weight is so that I can go back to that life and then I have to make up for lost time. And what I found is the only way to, to, to honestly deeply change my daily habits is that I never go, I never go back to that. And then daily, I enter into this, this is the life that I have. And it's a forced habit at first, but it becomes a love, both with what I eat daily and what I exercise. So in the last few months, I started running again, which I joked a few years ago, or a few weeks, months ago, that, that I only run if someone's chasing me. Or I, don't, I don't like to run. That, to me, that's not an activity of a normal human being to just run for no reason. <clears throat> but that, I just made that a part of my exercise routine. And so earlier this week, I'd already worked out in the day. I, I, I had free time. Misty was busy. And I... I wanted to go for a run, for, for, just for fun. I wanted to go for a run, just for fun. Just really weird. I know some of you do that. I don't know why I'm a part of your club now, this is, but this is a weird club to be a part of. Like, why do you just run? But I did. It wasn't a conscious choice. It was this habit had formed a new love in me. And so now back to Jesus. Jesus invited you into something simple, a daily repetitive new habit of life, to take his yoke upon you and learn from him, to look at his daily rhythms, his habits, his practices, and for those to enter into your life. Which I realize raises a, a question, right? How can we learn from Jesus when he's not physically present among us? Well, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, let me, we're going to get there eventually, but, but let me spoil the end for you. At the very end, Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to go into all the world, I want you to make disciples, and I want you to teach them to do what I taught you to do. In other words, you've seen my life, you've seen my practices, you've seen what my life has been about, you've seen my habits. I want you to go and tell the world to do those same things. And so you and I, as a church, we have received practices that are 2,000 years old that have been handed down from Jesus to disciples to the church. Things like prayer and Bible reading and fasting and attending worship like in this space, serving other Christians. We've received these practices to enter into Jesus' yoke. And so I want to focus on two of these practices that, and, and explain to you how these change the way you and I, how they change our lives. The first, one of the practices that the New Testament makes, makes clear Christians should make a part of our habit, our rhythm, is, is, is worship. It's Sunday, or it, not necessarily Sunday, but corporate worship for, with, with other Christians. So why? And for one reason, human beings, we're always worshiping, right? We worship when we go to the mall. We worship when we go to work. We worship when we go to school. We worship when we play or watch sports. In fact, I would say there's no time in your life when you're not worshiping, loving, longing for something. And so each day of your life, you have countless inputs 
telling you a different story by which to live, right? The mall says you're, you're, you need to shop and buy because you're broken, and this will fix you. Right? At work, you're told a story. You must produce if you're going to be worthwhile. At school, you're told a story. You have to be popular. You have to make the grades. You have to make the team, or else you're not good enough. And the answer Jesus gives to all of these stories you're going to encounter, you encountered last week, you're going to encounter this week, is not run for the hills and hide. Right? Get out of the world. Go and, and hide. He, that's not what he says. What he says is take my yoke upon you. Go through this life with me right by your side. That is the answer to these, all of these stories coming into you. And every week you come to worship, you enter into that yoke. When I, I was growing up, my parents made it a weekly rhythm. I, we went to church. And vomit was the only card out of church. And even that, like, I think there was some measuring Saturn of how bad the vomit was. Right? I mean, it was, we went to church, right? There was one time I scratched my eye and I was, like, in miserable pain. I went to church that Sunday. My parents thought I was faking it because I did fake it most of the time. But I went to church every Sunday. So the time in my life when I was a, um, a freshman in high school, I was most... Most unimpressed by the church, the time of my life I was least interested, most vulnerable to going to a different, a different way. But I'd also just gone into high school, and early in high school, um, it was just it was just a a difficult time. I think emotionally, <coughs> those of you maybe in high school, you feel this. Right, in high school, I wanted to be in the in crowd, um, invited to the best parties, have the most friends, and it was um, it was kind of working. I was decently successful at it early in in high school. But I was also, I was so restless. Every week I wondered, if, will my friends abandon me this week? Will they invite me this week? Am I, am I still welcome? Am I still in? It's a burdensome, restless story to live. And then Sunday morning came and I experienced a different story. There's a table there. And I was invited. But more than that, I wasn't just invited. Someone had died to get me there. And that invitation will never go away. It will be there for me no matter what I did last week, no matter what I did, I will do this week. That invitation will be there. And I came back into Christianity. I came back into the church. Not because I had a list of pros and cons. Not because, well, high school tells me this and the church tells you know, it, it was an experience. It was a desire. It was a longing. It was a love to have a place and never have it taken. And that's why you need this space. What we've been doing for the last 40 minutes is insult, uh, just assaulting your heart. Right? It's why we, we read a psalm that talks about how we're broken, we're sinners. It's why then we read Romans over ourselves, over one another. And we said, if God gave up his own son for you, what else is he going to give you? It's why we say, Christ be all around me. Maybe you're like me. You're thinking about moments this past week. You wonder, is Christ was around you? And you're thinking about things you have to face this week. You wonder, is Christ going to be all around me? And that moment, that we are assaulting your hearts in this. The church is not about giving you information. I hope that, that you're not going to necessarily learn more information about Matthew 11, and that's what you take home. I, I hope you take home a longing, a desire, a feeling. And as you enter into this space, God changes what you love, what you desire. Coming into this space, we got week is how you see the lies of the stories all around you. How ridiculous what the law has to say to us is. How ridiculous our school messages, our work messages. And we can go into those spaces and be, be of, of good. We can contribute because we live into a better story. 
a story you'll hear every week you come. So that's one practice you and I are called to. The second practice is Jesus calls his disciples to serve him. Another habit, or a rhythm practice that the church has said from the beginning, you have to be using your gifts to serve other Christians. Because in service, what you're doing is you're telling the story to others, right? If you, if you greet at one of our, our doors, you, what you're saying is, is you're telling the story of, of Christ's hospitality and love for the stranger to welcome them in. When you serve our children's ministry, you are telling the next generation the better story by which to live. Even if you're just holding a baby, that is telling this story, and by telling and receiving that story week after week after week, your heart changes to bless other things. And maybe you hear all that and say, but I have two objections. Right? One maybe is, I'm doing all those things and my heart love isn't changing. I, I'm serving, I'm coming to worship, it's not making any difference. And I would say two things to that. One is, is you're in a yoke. Right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't say, come to me. I have a, a couch with chocolates all over it and soft pillows to nap. Right? That's, he says a yoke. He says, we're going to work. It's going to exhaust you. Because his, his aim in the end is to make you perfect, to make you like him. That's not going to come easy. And so stay in the yoke. Keep after it. He's working on your heart. But the second thing I would say, I humbly ask, is worship and his, his service are those... Are those habits? Or just things you do when your other habits don't get in the way? Because a habit is something you do and you're not interrupted. A habit is something that's on the counter, it doesn't get moved. Right? It's, it's fixed, it's daily, it just happens again and again. And, and I would just ask, is that, is that true of your, your worship? Is that true of your service? Is that true of your prayer, your reading of scripture? Is it, is it a habit or is it an intermittent practice? That's maybe one objection. The other objection is maybe you're thinking, Tim, this, this makes it sound like it's all on us, right? We just do the right habits, and God loves us, and it all works out. And that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Our habits are important. It's how we redirect what we love, but that leads us into the third point. How do you get what you need to love rightly? How do you get this yoke? I, mean, I, already, I already said this, but you cannot miss the promise of what this yoke means for you and for me. It does not just mean you're going to be a slightly nicer person. You're going to get angry a little bit less. What it means is that at the end of this process— when the yoke finally goes off your neck in Jesus' yoke, you will be perfect. You'll be every bit as glorious and beautiful and humble and powerful and wonderful as Jesus himself was. It's the whole point of the yoke. You put another ox in that yoke so at the end of the day he was like his partner. And that's what Jesus has in mind for you, nothing less. So he says to all of us, come to me. Come and, and come right now. I mean, the yoke is this, you're right next to him, eye to eye, walking through life. Jesus says, come to me. And you will not be like him unless he wants you to be like him. And he does. He looks at our lives. He sees us tired and worn out and restless. It's not working. And he says, let me, let me put something around your neck and let me get next to you. And let's go. Let me help you carry your burdens. Let me give you an easier yoke than the one that's drifting you off towards disaster. Let me give you rest. And do you know why he can give you rest? Why he can make that promise and, and he will come through on it? Unlike the mall, unlike, <laughs> unlike school, unlike, or, unlike any other story you're going to hear, you know why? Why we can know his, his rest 
will be there for us in the end. Because on the cross, you just cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. And in that day, you quote the first verse to say, that's the whole scripture, right? Instead of Jesus saying, Psalm 22 from the cross, he gave you the first verse to say, go read that psalm. It, that's me. And if you read the second verse, just after Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The next verse of the psalm says, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no That Jesus cried out by night on the cross, finding no rest. So that you can have it. That he gave, he took our restlessness. He took the direction we were headed upon himself onto the cross so that you and I could have his restlessness. And if that's true, if he has our restlessness and we can have his rest, it means you and I, we can step into the room. We can step into what our heart truly desires. We can look at a future with a hopefulness. We can go into that room knowing it's not all the fall apart on us. We're not headed towards a cosmic, endless Restlessness. When we step into that room, there's someone standing in our place who's taken our restlessness off our backs, who's taken our burdens off our backs, on himself, onto a cross. And so this morning, whether you whether you believe Jesus your whole life and you're a Christian, or whether you've never believed in him before, here's his invitation to you. Go to him. You who labor and are heavy and laden, he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you, for he's gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For his yoke is easy, and his burden is light.